Personally, I'd like to welcome all of you to Crossview Church, you who are gathered here, as well as those who are watching online, and also a special welcome to those who are watching at New Lisbon Correctional Institution. We're so glad you're joining us here today. There was a father who loved his son. He loved his son with all of his heart. He loved his son with everything he had. He, he dearly loved his son, but his son would have these seizures And it wasn't just like the medical kind of seizure that the son would have. It was a little bit different. It was weird. It was darker. Uh, The son had ideation with demonic realms. And it seemed like when these seizures occurred, there was something else going on medically. There was something going on dark spiritually. And the father saw that and and grabbed his heart and it made him uh, break and ache. And so he went to all the medical people they could to try to take care of this. If you're a parent, you know you would do anything for your children. Your your children have your heart and you do anything to help them. And his father felt the same way. And so he sought out all the medical people he could and the medical people could not figure it out. They couldn't get to the bottom of what was happening. And so this father heard that there was these followers of Jesus Christ in the town. And he said, I'm going to go and ask them to pray for my son. So he took his son and he went in to this town. He saw the followers of Jesus and he said, would you pray for my son? And the follower of Jesus said, sure. And so they prayed, but nothing happened. Nothing took place. And as they were puzzled and as they were feeling defeated, And they're wondering what to do. And the father was at his last rope. That was his last hope. He thought, I'll just help this, see what happens. And it didn't work. So you can imagine what that father felt at that moment. And then all of a sudden in that moment, the master showed up. Jesus came out from the crowd and he walked among that spot and he came to that father. And and the father said, Jesus, here's the deal. Here's what's happening to my son. Will you please Please heal my son. As Jesus stood there, all of a sudden, the son went into one of those seizures and convulsions. And Jesus saw it firsthand, and and he started growling, and he hit the ground, and he was foaming at the mouth, and all these evil things were happening. And Jesus said to the man, how long has this been going on? And the man said, since the time he was a young boy. See, his heart broke for his son. And then he turned to Jesus, and he said, if you could do anything... Please have compassion on us and do it. And Jesus said, if I could do anything, if I can do anything, he said, things like this result in those who believe. And Jesus wasn't talking about if you believe that your son would be healed. Jesus talked about, do you believe I am the son of God? Do you believe I am the one who rules over all nations and universe? Do you believe I am the one that has all power from Almighty God and I can heal and solve and cast all demonic activity out with just a moment? Do you believe? Don't put your faith in the fact you want your son healed. You put your faith in me as Savior of the world. If I can do anything. And then this father said this amazing sentence at that time that is a really good prayer. He said, I believe, help my unbelief. I believe, but help my unbelief. Well, does he believe or doesn't he? Is there belief or there not? He says, I believe. Then at the same time, he says, help my unbelief. Does he believe or doesn't he? Maybe this tells us something about faith, something about belief, something about trust. 
It's all the same word here, believing in who God is, having faith in who God is, trusting who God is. It's all the same idea. Maybe there's something in this for us. Maybe what he's saying is, I believe initially that you are the son of God. I believe that, but I don't believe totally. There's parts of my life I want to hang on to and not submit to you because I think I can handle them best, so I don't believe totally. Maybe he's saying that faith and belief and trust in God isn't like a light switch we just throw on or off. You have it or you don't, but it's more of like a dimmer switch. You have an initial turn that turns it on and gives you power. That's where you give your life to Jesus Christ. But then maybe as you grow in faith and you grow in your relationship with God, the dimmer switch is turned. And the goal of the dimmer switch, as we saw in chapters uh, earlier in this book, is to have it pegged to the right, pegged to the spot where we're fully mature in Christ. Like, that's the goal. But maybe there's a spot where we're somewhere on the journey. Maybe this father was somewhere on the journey. And his prayer was, I believe somewhat, but help my unbelief. Help me get pegged to the right. Help me realize who you truly are, that I would trust to surrender my entire life to you. Maybe that's true of us here today, wherever you are. Maybe you believe, but you don't totally believe. Maybe you believe enough that you know Jesus is the Son of God, but you don't believe enough to surrender all of your heart and your life to him. Maybe you're on that journey, that process of learning. You see, Paul the apostle knew that that would happen in churches. He knew there'd be churches where that would take place. In this one specific church in a town called Colossae and some other churches in the region, he knew that they were kind of dealing with the same thing. They had this initial belief, and some of them were pegged to the right. Some of them totally were sold out. But there was a journey there, and some may have not been totally there right away. And he wanted to write them to tell them what it means to be a true follower of Christ, what it means to be in Christ, because he knew that if you know you are in Christ, that dial is going to be pegged to the right. The more you know who Jesus is, the more you know what he's done for you, the more you trust, the more that dial gets moved. And his whole ambition was that this church would get pegged to the right. Jesus met that father where he was at and healed his son. And it pegged that needle to the right. My prayer is that God would do that in our hearts today, that we would see who we are in Christ and we would understand the power that there is there. If you have a Bible, open it up to Colossians chapter 2. We're going to spend time in four verses today. Colossians chapter 2, we're going to look at verses 11 to 15. Uh, you can get there in the Church Center app or the version, or if you have a, a paper Bible and you're not totally familiar with it, uh, Colossians is towards the back. You'll see uh, Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians. If you hit Hebrews, James, or Philemon, or something like that, you've gone too far, go back to the left. And we're going to be in Colossians chapter 2. And in this verse passage, we're going to see a big umbrella called In Christ, and everything that Paul's going to talk about is under this big umbrella, In Christ. His goal is that we would understand what it means to be in Christ. That's what he wants to do here. So in Colossians chapter 2, 11 through 15, we're going to see that this umbrella in Christ happens because something happened because of what Jesus did. Something happened because of what Jesus did. Look at verse 11. He says, you were also circumcised in him with a circumcision not done with hands 
by putting off the body of flesh in the circumcision of Christ. Paul starts by talking about a Jewish ritual that the people listening to him at this church would know exactly what he is talking about. He was talking about this Jewish ritual of circumcision, which was an identity marker that took young Jewish men and their families and gave them the full benefit of what it meant to be the people of God. It gave them the full benefit of what it meant to be the people of God. And the Jewish people knew what he meant, and they cherished that symbol because it meant that they have all these benefits in God. The Gentile people, and there's both in this church that he's writing to, Jew and Gentile, the Gentile people hated that symbol because it was an obstacle that they could never get through and they'll never get the things of God. And so for some, they loved it, some they hated. And what Paul is saying here is that there's a new kind of circumcision. It's called the cross of Jesus Christ. And in the cross of Jesus Christ, now everyone who enrolls, everyone who gives their life to him, everyone who surrenders their life to Jesus Christ now receives the full benefit of the cross regardless of your nationality, regardless of your race, regardless of what you've done. If you come and you give your life to Jesus Christ, you receive the benefit of this. You are now in Christ. You see, the Gentiles wished they had that Old Testament thing to get the benefit of God, and now Paul says, no, you don't wish that. There's something better. It's called the cross of Jesus Christ. In this, there's a phrase there. It says, in the circumcision of Christ, there's been some debate among Bible scholars about what that really means. Uh, There's two kind of schools of thought. Both are biblical. Both are fully Christian. Uh, They're only different is maybe a millimeter of meaning. Uh, But I believe what this is saying when it talks about the circumcision of Christ is that it's the circumcision that Christ does through the cross. The circumcision that Christ does through the cross. Because of the cross, we are fundamentally placed in Christ. Because of the cross, we are brought closer to God. Through the cross, sinful humanity is now brought into a place of adoption in Jesus Christ. That is the umbrella. Being in Christ is this umbrella. And now Paul, in the rest of this passage, dies into uh, three truths that we have to grab onto that describe what it means to be in Christ. Three truths that describe what it means to be in Christ. The first one, in Christ we are saved from the penalty of sin. We are saved from the penalty of sin. In verse 11 it says, this is done with a circumcision not done by human hands, meaning it doesn't have human origin. You can't save yourself. There's not, it's not set up this plan is not set up so you do enough good things where you save yourself and you earn your way to heaven. That will never ever happen. You cannot earn your way to heaven. The gap is way too wide. God is way too perfect. He's way too holy. And us forming little, nice little things for God will never ever make it because he is too holy compared to the sin inside of us. And we are all sinful. We are all broken. We all have missed the mark. And so there's nothing we can do. This isn't come originated from you. God did something to save you. God initiated the process. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to come to earth, who lived the perfect life for you. And then he went to the cross, and on the cross, God took our sin, your sin and my sin, and placed it upon his son. The Bible says, he who knew no sin, he who was perfect, became sin for us. And God poured out his wrath 
upon his son and now gives us this amazing offer. If you come and you give your life to Jesus Christ and you invite him into your heart, into your life, you are placed in Christ and you are saved from the penalty of sin. On the cross through faith, you are saved from the penalty of sin. You no longer have to have sin domineering over your life. The sinful past is no longer able to define you. If you look, there's a a phrase in there that says, putting off the body of flesh. That's saying the sinful things you did that used to define you can no longer define you now because they're rend powerless. They've been cut. They're done away with. Everybody wants to live life to the fullest. Everybody wants to live life to the max. They want to get everything they can out of life. You will never, ever, ever live life to the fullest unless you are in Christ. A human being cannot live to their full potential unless they live in Christ, unless they surrender and die and give their lives to Christ because it's in that place you are placed in him where now life begins to make sense. Now life comes to uh, fill us and, and, and we have an awareness of what life is all about. So Jesus comes and we are saved from the penalty of sin. That's what Paul is talking about here. Now, it doesn't mean you no longer sin again. It it means you are no longer a slave to sin. It doesn't mean that you no longer sin. It means you're no longer a slave to sin. It's like this. Imagine yourself wearing a backpack. Imagine you put this backpack on. In the Old Testament, here's how it went. You have this backpack, and every single time you sin, sin, a softball-sized rock gets dropped in that backpack. Every sin you commit is a rock in your backpack. Boom, another rock. Boom, another rock. You know, all day long, we'd have full backpacks within, you know, an hour of our day, right? It's just who we are. We We collect all these rocks because of the sin. In the Old Testament, what you had to do to get that off your back is you had to go to the temple if you were the people of God, and you would offer a sacrifice. And the sacrifice, in essence, took the backpack off, dumped all the rocks, and then put your empty backpack back on, and you went back into life. And then all of a sudden, as you sin, you collect more rocks. More rocks come. Then you go back to the temple. You ask a sacrifice. You take the backpack off. You dump it. You put the backpack back on. Now in the New Testament, because of the cross of Jesus Christ, you no longer carry the backpack. The backpack comes off and is given to Christ. He carries the backpack. Now we still sin. There's still rocks thrown in our backpack and we have to take those seriously. We have to repent and ask forgiveness because they do affect our fellowship with God. But the weight of sin, the penalty of sin, the bearing of sin is no longer on us. It's now on Jesus Christ because of what he's done. Do you understand what that means? That means you are set free. That means you are a new creation. That means you're brought closer to God because of what Jesus Christ has done. We're free from the penalty of sin. Number two, this also means that in Christ we are made new and set free. In Christ, we are made new and set free. Look at verse 12. It says, When you were buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him, through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. Now Paul uses another analogy. Before he used circumcision, now he's talking baptism. Baptism is an outward expression of an inward reality. Once you give your life to Jesus Christ and you say, I want to live with you forever, 
I want to let you to be my Savior and Lord. I repent. I turn from my ways. I believe in who you are. Once you've done that, baptism is an outward expression to the world that declares, I am a follower of Jesus Christ, and I am going to live for Jesus all the rest of my days. It's a proclamation of something that's happening inside the heart Being in Christ means we died to our former way of life. We turned to our sins. There's the baptism is a a model of a spiritual reality. It models the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. It all so when we are baptized, it's a symbol that we are now in Christ. We no longer live like we used to live. The former ways of life no longer define us. We've been fundamentally turned. It means we rose to a new lifestyle of honoring Jesus Christ. We become his disciple. And there's two parts to that disciple. One is a dying to our old way of life in sin. And one is being raised to new life in Christ. And both of those are symbolized in baptism. He goes on in verse 13. And when you were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh he made you alive with him and forgave us all of our trespasses there's a reality that happens here I want you to look at it it says he took care of our sin he did all these things he made you alive forgave you your trespasses when did he do that look at the beginning of verse 13 when you were dead in your trespasses you can't do anything to save you When you were dead in your trespasses, when you were separated from God, some people have this analogy that it's kind of like if you're in water drowning and and Jesus is like this flotation device and you got to swim and you grab onto the flotation device and you're saved. That's a poor illustration of Christian life. You were dead. You were drowning in the water. You were heading down. You weren't on the surface. You were dead. And God came and he grabbed you and he pulled you out and you were dead and now you were made alive. See, that's what he did in Christ. We're fundamentally different because of the cross. We are separated from God, but now by his grace, we repent and believe, and we are forgiven from our sin. It says all spiritual debt has been canceled, and we're brought alive spiritually. We need to remember that because we forget that. Sometimes we sin And instead of remembering that the backpack belongs to Christ, instead of remembering that we are made new, we go into this whole tirade of condemnation. And we believe all these lies that Satan throws at who do you think you are to call yourself a Christian? Why would you even attempt to go to Crossview Church after doing what you did? After you say all that stuff, look at all that, you think you can be a Christian? Who do you think you are? And we take that hook, line, and sinker, and we say, yeah, that's right. That's... We don't understand. You are in Christ. When you are in Christ, that is powerless. It's powerless. Don't fall into condemnation. When you are in Christ, you are no longer marked and defined by sin. You are no longer marked and defined by those things you wish you can go back to your past and change. Those things that you try to hide and cover, you don't want anyone to know, those things no longer define you when you are in Christ. You are set free from those things. If you look at these passage, these verses starting in verse 9, verse 9 all the way 15, you'll see in Christ, in him, with him, over and over, 9, 11, 12, 13. And the reason for that is because all, as Christians, we are united inseparably with Christ. We are in him. And being so, we are fundamentally changed at our core because of what Christ did. 
don't know if any of you are like me and you like coffee. I love coffee. Praise Jesus for coffee. Thank God for coffee, right? I don't like putting cream in my coffee, but if you, amen, there, we finally got an amen. I don't know if you like putting cream in your coffee. I don't, but if you do, every time you put cream in your coffee, you can be reminded of this. Because it's like when you put cream in that coffee, that cream can no longer be cream again. It's brought into that coffee and it's fundamentally changed. It's fundamentally different. You can't pull it out and be cream again. Some of you live the Christian life like that. You realize all that God did to forgive you, to set you free, to give you grace. And the moment you sin, the moment you fall into it, you say, oh, all that's done. And now I'm back into this sinful, broken person. No, you are in Christ. You have to repent. You have to ask forgiveness for that sin, but it doesn't fundamentally change who you are. You're still a child of God because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. And Paul wants this church to get that, to understand they're in Christ, because when you do, it pegs the meter more to the right, and you begin to trust God more, and you begin to become more and more mature in Christ because you trust who he is. Look at verse 14. He erased the certificate of debt with all its obligations that was against us and opposed to us and has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. Doesn't that sound good? He erased the certificate of debt. That debt we have in our head of how we think we owe God for all this stuff. Jesus erased that by going to the cross. All your regrets no longer define you. All those things that you cover and you hate about yourself and you wish would stop no longer have power. They no longer define you when you are in Christ. The cross of Jesus Christ sets you free from pain and shame and guilt and regret. You are set free because of the cross. Do you get this? From the past sins and present day sins. There's a song we used to sing in the church where I grew up and I'm not going to sing it for you, but I sing it all the time because I have to remind myself that I'm in Christ. And the song, the words of the song go like this. There is a place, a wonderful place, where accused and condemned, that's you and I, find mercy and grace. From the wrongs we have done and the wrongs done to us, we're nailed there with him, there on the cross. You see, there's a place we're accused and condemned and broken. There's a place for those of you who feel like what you did will never ever be erased because it's so heinous and so bad. There's a place where you can come and you can have that nailed to the cross of Jesus Christ and you can be set free because of what God has done. There's a wonderful place to be set free and Paul wants his church to get that. He wants to get something else. Number three, in Christ we have his victory. We have his victory. Look at verse 15. It says, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them in him. Some people give Satan way too much credit. Some people give Satan and his demons way too much credit. Jesus Christ is victory over Satan and all the demonic powers, regardless of what you see in this world, regardless of the evil that's out there. And I'm going to explain all that in a second. But you need to know that Jesus Christ defeats Satan and all demonic powers at the cross. And Paul painted a picture here. In that word triumph, you see that word triumph in verse 15? Look at the word triumph in verse 15. You see that? 
There's a whole, that's a loaded word. In the original Greek language, that's loaded. There's a picture of in that word that's only used another spot in the New Testament. And Paul specifically used that word because he wanted to create this picture in the mind of the church that was reading this letter. And the picture he's creating is the picture of what happens when the Roman Empire, the day who ruled the world, they were all powerful. They would go in and they would destroy another country. They would go in and they would take another part of their nation and therefore expand the empire. And what they would do is they'd come to Rome and they'd have a victory parade. And that word triumph is, is this picture of this victory parade that he created in their minds. Here's what would happen. And everybody knew of these parades. Whether you lived in Rome or whether you were in the outside part of the empire, you knew about these victory parades. So the Roman army would go and they'd, they'd conquer another part of the land. They'd conquer another city. They'd conquer another nation. And then they'd come into Rome and they'd set up this parade. And the first part of what would happen in the parade, first the Roman officials and leaders would go first. They would lead. So Caesar and all of his crew would lead first, and all the people are watching this. Then after them, there'd be these trumpeters. They'd be trumpeting and making music, long live Rome, long live the empire, and they would go next in the parade. And then after the music people went through, then all of a sudden what it'd be is you'd see the treasure that was stolen and conquered from the land they destroyed. So they destroy these cities and these countries, and they grab all their gold, all their, anything worth anything, they put it on these carts, and they would bring it down and march it through the parade, and the people would sit and go, wow, look at all that gold that's now ours. I never saw anything like it, and they'd marvel, and they'd have that go. Then all of a sudden, they would put behind the gold the defeated generals who lost, who led the army against the Roman Empire and lost, and they publicly disgraced them. They'd have them go first. And then behind them was the army, those who were still alive from the battle who lost. And as the generals and the army would be paraded through, they'd be begging for mercy to the people in the parade. They'd say, have mercy on us, because they know they're being marched to their death. And so they'd be begging for mercy. And then the last one to come through would be the general who won it all. He would be the last one to march through. And when Paul used that word triumph, he was creating that word picture in their mind because he's saying that is what Jesus Christ did to Satan. That is what Jesus Christ did to all evil. That is what Jesus Christ did to all demonic powers. And you have to remember that because right now you just see a fraction. But when Christ comes back again, it's going to be finalized. And that's what he did. But right now you have to understand that the powers of Satan have been defeated. Paul wants us to see that. He wants to see that Satan is living in public disgrace. And in Christ, we live in his victory. It's like this. Picture yourself watching a football game on DVR that you know the result. You're watching your favorite team. I do this to Pastor Ryan all the time. I would say, hey, did you see the Bears game? Yay, go Bears. And he's like, I didn't watch it yet. And I blow it for him. So let's say you have your favorite football team and you know the results. You know they went, they won the game, but you're still watching the DVR replay. When you know that they won, when they fall behind the game, you don't sweat it or worry, do you? Because you know the result. See, God does the same thing on the cross. He says, you may see all these evil things happening in our world. You may see all these things going on. Don't get caught up in those because I won the game. The end result is that Jesus Christ is victorious, and because of who you are, you live in Christ. So don't get all worked up about all these things you're seeing, thinking, oh, this is bad. Remember who you are. 
Remember that you are in Christ and that has been done away with. The word Satan means accuser because that's what he does. He comes and accuses us and says, who do you think you are? Look at all this. And what Paul is saying here is you need to know that when he does that to you, those are empty threats. There's no power in those anymore. There's no power in Jesus telling you that, or that Satan telling you that you are unworthy, that you are garbage, that you are, uh, should be condemned, that you, who do you think you are? There's no power in that anymore because of the cross of Jesus Christ. Pastor Tony Evans said this. He said, if somebody has a gun pointed at you, whether or not it is loaded is a huge deal. The devil does not want you to know that his gun has been emptied by the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, if you don't know that, you are still going to cower and run, living in fear and shame, but you don't have to listen to him. Though he is right about your sins, that you commit sin, your debt has been paid by Jesus. See, we have a church sometimes that buys the lie that the gun is loaded, and anything Satan says to me is true, and we have to remember, because of the cross of Jesus Christ, he has been disarmed. What God has done in the cross is so much greater than any evil that you see in this world that knocks on your door. So what's going through your mind these days? What's going on in your heart these days? Are you remembering? If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, are you remembering who you are? Are you believing all these lies that tear you down? Are you falling in line with who you are in Christ? Or are you allowing all these things you see in the world and all these things you see in your life that are contrary to God define you? Take those words, those thoughts, to the cross of Jesus Christ. Take them to the cross of Jesus Christ. I want to call you back. Some of you may feel like you've slipped and you've fallen away from God. At one time, you were closer. Some of you may feel like I've never really had a relationship with God. It doesn't matter. All of us are sinful, broken people, and apart from Christ, we are lost. One thing we can say that is true is we all need Jesus. And so what I want to do is I want to call you back to God this morning. And I'm going to call you back with a simple three-sentence prayer. A simple three-sentence prayer. Jesus, forgive me of my sin. I believe you are the true Son of God, and I give all of my life to you. Jesus, forgive me for my sin. I believe you are the true Son of God, and I give all of my life to you. That is a call back to God. When you pray that and you believe it, you are brought into Christ, and all these things we talk about apply to you. The other thing I want to encourage you to do is this week, take this passage, Colossians 2, 11 to 15, and read it and write down every time you see Jesus doing something for his church. When you see in him, with him, in Christ, write down what he's talking about. See all the things you are in Christ because of what he has done. I hope you understand and I pray you understand that there is a place, it's an absolutely wonderful place, where accused, broken, fallen, condemned, regret-filled people come and they find mercy and forgiveness and grace. It's a beautiful place. Come to that place. Let's pray and ask God for his help. Father in heaven, we thank you 
for that wonderful place because of your son, Jesus Christ. God, I ask that you would help us to live as believers in Christ. And Father, for those that may not know you, I pray now that they would come and that they would pray that three-sentence prayer and they would just come before you and say, and maybe there's some of us here who need to pray, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. I, I buy in a little bit, but I don't know if I totally agree. God, will you meet us where we are at and bring us to that place where we are fully mature in Jesus Christ? God, that's the heart of these words. And I just ask, we admit we need you. We admit we can't do this on our own. So we pray that you would do those on our behalf, what we can't do for ourselves. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand as we worship.